Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we are going to be reading our first and possibly our only male author in this series, John Stuart Mill. His book, The Subjection of Women, written in 1869, is important to me personally because it's the first philosophical critique of patriarchy that I ever read. Um, About six years ago, I was searching for books on the history of patriarchy. I'd never read any. And this book, The Subjection of Women, popped up as a suggestion. And I thought the title looked intriguing. So I bought it and read it. And it is not an exaggeration to say that it was life-changing for me. I saw so many of my own private thoughts and struggles and feelings represented as legitimate cultural and political issues, and I couldn't believe that this analysis had been written a century and a half earlier. Uh, My own copy is marked up and dog-eared, and I've read it a couple of times, and I'm really excited to discuss it with my reading partner today, Frances K. Olibes. Hi, Frances K. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Frances Kay and I are dear friends, and we're also in the same family, as you can probably tell from the last name. She is my husband's aunt, and she's always been one of those cool, hip, young aunts who's like more like an older sister um, to my husband and to me, really, than an aunt. So, Frances Kay, I remember the first time I met you when Eric and I were engaged, and you've always been so welcoming and warm to me. And your, your children have been such an important part of my children's lives. And it's just really beautiful, I think, as a bonus. It turns out that over the years, we've discovered that we're quite like-minded and um, kindred spirits. So, Amen. Yeah, it's been such a blessing in my life. So, And thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. And um, just so our listeners can get to know you a bit more, I'm just going to share a brief bio that you wrote. Um, Frances Kay is an amazing writer. She's too modest to say that about herself. But like (laughs) being on your Christmas card list is like a privilege because you always write such great. (laughs) I love you. It's true. Okay. um, So I'm just going to read this bio that that, uh, Frances Kay wrote. Frances Kay is the youngest of four children. First-generation American, she was born to Franz and Margaretha Olibes, who immigrated to the United States from the Netherlands shortly following World War II and after joining the LDS Church, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, They came to America with their three-year-old son, Edward, in tow. That's my husband's dad, the oldest child in the family. Um, And so they decided to start a new life in the great American West. Uh, They started in Salt Lake City and then moved on to Wyoming and then finally settled in California. Frances Kay was born in Northern California in a typical suburban community, climbing trees, catching frogs, and popping wheelies on her Schwinn bike. Anything her brother Brigham was doing because doing boy stuff was way more fun. (laughs) Her first foothold foothold as a feminist probably started there, questioning adults why girls couldn't do the same fun things as boys, wearing pants to elementary school. Oh, well, girls couldn't wear pants to elementary school at that time. Is that right, Frances Kay? Oh, yeah. Seriously. Crazy. So girls couldn't do the same things as boys, including wearing pants to elementary school. And uh, you were already wondering why scientists, presidents, and famous artists were mostly men. So fast forward, with a degree from BYU, she moved to Los Angeles in the mid-80s and embraced the big city life, loving this treasure trove of arts, education, and enrichment, as well as a diverse ocean of people and ideas. 
She worked at UCLA as a special events planner for several years, and after walking the bowels and bones of the university, she walked with her diploma and a master's in education and became a full-fledged Bruin. Um, at the same time, she met her wonderful husband, Orel, and they started their exciting lives together. Her second career as a teacher started in her early 30s and a move back to Orange County where she and Orel started their family. It was a soft landing with jobs, home prices within reach, and the help of an Oma and Opa, which is Dutch for grandma and grandpa, to help raise their kids. They have three amazingly creative and smart children, and I can definitely attest to that. They're incredible kids. Soren, who just graduated and is now working as a mechanical engineer. Dane, who should be graduating in a year in applied design. And Holland, who is a superstar, superstar senior. After a short retirement, Frances Kay went back to teach art at elementary schools, and that became a springboard to what she does now, which is using art as therapy in rehab treatment centers for those dealing with addiction and mental health issues. Frances Kay enjoys hiking, yoga, having everyone home to roost, and encouraging creativity in all people, in all places, and with all things. Um, I love that bio, and um, I second all of those things. You have an incredible family. Um, and Francis Kay, I'm just wondering now if you could talk for a minute, because I like to ask my reading partners um, what interested them in this project. So if you could just tell me a little bit about why you agreed to do this with me, that would be great. Well, first of all, I'm so honored. And when I heard about this, I just thrilled beyond measure. So um, just Continuing a little bit on the bio helps you understand why this is just so incredibly important to me. Mm -hmm. So at an early age, I identified as a feminist. I, I remember being called a woman's liver when I was in elementary school. Not sure that was a, a good uh, name to be called, but I was outspoken, loud, and somewhat of a tomboy. That's what, you know, they called in that days. In my teens, I was busy being boy crazy and with too much attention to attracting those boys. Still, at that time, I was questioning why things were the way they were. And in my 20s, these questions became more about patriarchy, social systems, and gender roles. Raised by a terrific and egalitarian father, it was the institution of patriarchy that disturbed me and the inequality I saw in my travels abroad and, of course, in my own culture. When I heard about your project, Amy, oh my gosh, I had several emotions whirling, joy, regret, <laughs> resentment, embarrassment. In all my years of schooling and being, a, and being fierce about women's rights, I had very little education or exposure to the foundations and theory behind what I believed, let alone the fundamental texts. Maybe it was the schools I attended or the time I grew up in. I'll set all that blame and all those excuses aside and just say that I'm so thrilled to be part of this project. But most importantly, it's for my 17-year-old daughter who will be listening to all these podcasts with me. May my, may my ceiling be her floor. I'm so grateful that you're taking on this incredibly important task of exploring foundational and historical important texts in such an approachable way to dialogue, to detangle, and to break down patriarchy. Thanks, Francis K. I do, I just have to address... Um, some that all of those emotions that you described of um, excitement and regret and resentment and embarrassment, but um, joy. I just I, I have to say, every single woman that I've talked to has um, expressed similar things, and 
one thing that I've had the benefit of experiencing because I get to have like multiple conversations with all these women is letting go of kind of like, oh, the, kind of the guilt of like, why didn't I know this? And, and realizing <laughs> kind of like you said, like, oh, I'm not going to take on that blame. And one of the things that I personally would like to be more involved in at some point in my life is um, I, I saw a TED talk recently about how important it is to get women's history into like just public school curriculum. And because yes. there's really, I mean, that's where we should have learned this stuff, right? Is, right. is just as kids, boys and girls together, learning about men and learning about women and all human beings' contributions. So I invite you to let go of the embarrassment and the, <laughs> the, those, but also to to know that we're all feeling the same way, and it's just so great to be on this journey yeah. together. So, yeah. Um, thanks for sharing all of that. Um, before we dive into the book, we also like uh, each time to, for each episode to talk a little bit about the author and what led. Uh, in this case, John Stuart Mill to write the subjection of women. So, Francis K, could you tell us a little bit about John Stuart Mill? Great. Okay, so I'm going to give a little edit in there. That last part when you said bring it into, into the elementary schools. Yeah. I just was thinking I really want to tag on this. So, my daughter just recently is soon to graduate from high school, and mm -hmm. even in her elementary school curriculum or in high school, so little of this is covered. Yeah. So even now in our times, I can't say that she really has addressed much of this, even in this year that we're celebrating, you know, the women's vote mm -hmm. and she is studying, you know, American history. I there's, she's not getting much about that. Yeah. So yes, thank you for taking on yet another important work, Amy. Well, eventually, it's something <laughs> I definitely want to look more into because I do think that that's one way that we can address this and great. Um, so that, it, yeah, so that our ceiling is the floor for our daughters, like you said, so beautifully. Okay. John Stuart Mill, born in 1806 and died in 1873, is known as the most influential English speaking philosopher of the 19th century. He was fluent in Greek and Latin by the age of 10. By the age of 20, he had extensive knowledge of the arguments of the Greek philosophers and was a gifted practitioner of the art of rhetoric. Mill was a nonconformist. He refused to subscribe to the 39 Articles of Faith of the Church of England and was therefore not eligible to attend Oxford or Cambridge. He attended University College London instead and then went to work with his father for the British East India Company. In 1851, Mill married Harriet Taylor after 21 years of intimate friendship. Brilliant in her own right, Taylor was a significant influence on Mill's work and ideas during both friendship and marriage. His relationship with Taylor reinforced Mills' advocacy of women's rights. He said that in his stand against domestic violence and for the women's rights, he was chiefly an onomoensis, which means writing assistance for scribe, to my wife. He called her mind a perfect instrument and, that, and said that she was the most eminently qualified of all those known to the author. He cites her influence in his final revision of his famous book, On Liberty, which was published shortly after her death. Between the years 1865 and 1868, Mill served as Lord Rector of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. At his inaugural address delivered to the university, he made his now famous but often wrongly attributed remark that bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than the 
that good men should look on and do nothing. He was also a member of parliament. In 1866, he became the first person in the history of parliament to call for women to be given the right to vote, vigorously defending this position in subsequent debates. In Introducing Mill, we want to read a passage that he writes in The Subjection of Women, where he writes about the impact of the patriarchal system upon boys and men. Amy, would you mind reading this passage? Yeah, I, yeah, we we talked about it before and and just thought like, wow, this is an uh, is amazing, especially for 1892. So, so progressive, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, okay, so I'll just quote Mill for a couple of sentences. He says, "Quote: Think what it is to be a boy, to grow up to manhood in the belief that without any merit or any exertion of his own, though he may be the most frivolous and empty or the most ignorant and stolid of mankind." By the mere fact of being born a male, he is by right and superior of an entire half of the human race, including probably some who are really superior to himself. If he is a fool, he thinks that, of course, she is not and cannot be equal in ability and judgment to himself. And if he is not a fool, he does worse. He sees that she is superior to him and believes that notwithstanding her superiority, he is entitled to command and that she is bound to obey. Um, he goes on to say, that's the end of his quote, and he goes on to say that um, in childhood, boys don't really pick up on the fact that they are going to eventually like be in charge of women because boys aren't allowed to domineer over their sisters. Um, and they both, both boys and girls have to obey their parents. But Mill says that as boys get a little bit older, they start noticing and figuring out that, oh, actually men are in charge of women in the world. And that, and Mill says that that has a really bad effect on the boy's character. So another quote from him, quote, is it imagined that all this does not pervert the whole manner of existence of the man, both as an individual and as a social being? It is an exact parallel to the feeling of a hereditary king that he is excellent above others by being born a king or a noble by being born a noble. The relation between husband and wife is very like that between lord and vassal, except that the wife is held to more unlimited obedience than the vassal was. However, the vassal's character may have been affected, for better or for worse, by his subordination, who can help seeing that the Lord's was affected greatly for the worse? Whether he was led to believe that his vassals were really superior to himself, or to feel that he was placed in command over people as good as himself, for no merits or labors of his own, but merely for having taken the trouble to be born. End of quote. Wow, Amy. I think this excerpt is so powerful. I do too. It's it's so rare in any time period for people to take the time to examine and challenge systems that benefit them. I mean, this system definitely benefited Mill, but he is questioning it repeatedly with amazing arguments. Mm -hmm. And I like that he points out that the assumed sense of superiority is corrupting to a boy's character as well. I mean, I have sons. I can see this. So, yeah, it takes a lot of courage to admit that. And it really speaks to Mill's character. Well, and probably the influence of his wife. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I totally agree. It's such a powerful quote. Um, okay, so should we jump into the book? Um, yeah, I guess that quote was from the book also, but we have kind of outlined um, some main points that we wanted to highlight. So we have five different themes that we felt 
um, kind of emerged from the text and that we wanted to um, to highlight and bring out. So I'll start with the first one. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So number one, uh, liberty and equality of human beings should be the default. So the quote from Mill is this, the burden of proof is supposed to be with those who are against liberty, who contend for any restriction or prohibition, either any limitation of the general freedom of human action or any disqualification or disparity of privilege affecting one person or kind of person as compared with others. Those who maintain the doctrine that men have a right to command and women are under an obligation to obey or that men are fit for government and women unfit, they are on the affirmative side of the question and they are bound to show positive evidence for the assertions or to submit to their rejection, uh, end of quote. So here Mill is pointing out that women have always been placed in the position of having to prove that they're worthy of equal rights, right? They're always disadvantaged and having to like clamor and beg and ask for these rights. And he says that that is wrong um, as a philosopher um, and kind of like a professional rhetorician. I mean, he, as, as you talked about in the bio, he, he spoke in parliament. So he's skilled in rhetoric and speech and debate. And he says the default argument should be equal rights. So if someone proposes that a certain group should not have equal rights, then they need to come up with a good reason why not. The burden of proof is supposed to be with those who are against liberty, he says they are bound to show positive evidence for the assertion. Um, as we read this, I thought back to a couple um, of episodes ago on Olympe de Gouges, where my reading partner, Lindsay, it's actually my daughter, Lindsay Francis Gay. She was yeah. my reading partner on that one. Um, and so Lindsay and I were on the episode, we were just kind of talking in real time and feeling so frustrated that women are so often in the position of petitioning a group of men and like begging men for the same rights that the men already enjoy. And we were trying, trying to think of like um, an argument that men would listen to. And it just felt humiliating. And we got so frustrated, like that. I mean, I think we've probably all had the, the experience of having a conversation with a man and having them be like, yeah, that just doesn't really make sense to me. And just feeling powerless and they all they have to do is just be like, yeah, sorry, we don't see it that way. Yeah. So anyway, we couldn't think of a philosophical argument and there it is. Like Mill provides it that like, oh no, no, we need to flip that around. They right. should be the ones having to make the argument about why you shouldn't have the same rights. Right. So that was powerful to me. And I'm going to have that one in my pocket for the next time I have a conversation <laughs> like that. That's perfect. Uh, Okay, so I'll take point number two as well. And then um, afterwards, Francis K., you'll have number three. So um, point, point number two is um, that men create laws. And here I have to interject. I would say they can cre men create all kinds of social systems, including um, religions and all kinds of ideologies, by observing the world around them and then codifying the systems that they observe. He points out that we often accept things that we are used to um, just as a part of society that we would never introduce into our societies if they didn't already exist. But just because we've already always seen them there, then we're like, oh, yeah, that's just the way it is. And then we create laws based on that. So here's a quote from. So wait, but Amy, yeah. do you 
is that how, just for everybody's understanding, mine included, that codifying that word is exactly what you just explained? Yeah, like turning it into a code. Right. You know, yeah, right. So you take an idea and then you say like, oh, because I'm observing this, now we're going to make it the law of the land. Yeah, exactly. Um, Right. Okay. So here's a brief quote from Mill that kind of represents this idea. He says, quote, it arose simply from the fact that from the very earliest twilight of human society, every woman, owing to the value attached to her by men, combined with her inferiority in muscular strength, was found in a state of bondage to some man. So just to reference another author that we've um, featured on the podcast, this is exactly what Gerda Lerner says in The Creation of Patriarchy. She talks about how the agricultural revolution um, changed everything between men and women, and but it, it changed very, very gradually. And so by the time uh, humans started writing down laws like the Code of Hammurabi, they already saw that men basically owned women and traded women. And so by the time they wrote laws, they just took it for granted that that was the way things always had been. Um, It kind of reminds me of like, I mean, it's easy to see in other people's mythology or like ancient mythology that people do this, right? Like, right. Like in the myths, the Greeks observed the cycles of the seasons and create a story to explain them. Persephone goes underground to Hades for half a year. And while she's gone, the earth goes into mourning and nothing can grow. Hey, that's winter. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And there's like, I guess there's no danger in creating explanations about nature, right? Except that that keeps you from like seeing the actual true scientific explanations. Like you might like have the myth in your mind and then you can't be objective about observing, but it doesn't hurt anybody to believe that Hades took Persephone underground and that's what causes winter. But it can be really dangerous if you look at how human beings are treated, right? And then create a theological explanation for that. And that makes me think of... Um, our own faith tradition with the LDS church and their explanations of white supremacy, right? I mean, exactly. I don't know if you learned that, Francis K. Like, oh, did you <laughs> go for it? Because this is hard. It's to hard. Yeah. I remember, like, I, well, I mean, I guess for listeners who aren't Mormon, um, Brigham Young observed, I, I mean, what I, the way I would attribute how Brigham Young talks about African people, um, people from Africa, wherever they live, African-American or African living anywhere in the world. Um, he observed that people of African descent were enslaved and that they were deprived of opportunities. And so he thought of them in a certain way. And and then in my view, Brigham Young cre- and others of his time created a story that like, oh, this is because, I mean, they just created a mythology, right? That, right. Africans had and what I learned as a child was that people of African descent had had descended from Cain, the biblical Cursed figure of with Cain. The dark skin. Yes. Yeah. And they had been the the term is less valiant, right? That they had been less valiant before they came to earth and they um and so it was just an explanation for what these people in the 19th century perceived in the world around them and they said, "Oh, well then this is the the spiritual story." And the the huge tragic, like, to me, inexcusable, egregious damage was that that was like the origin story for our uh, a whole group of human beings. And that story persisted in Mormon culture for generations. I think it's right. just and barely people didn't now. really question it. Uh-uh. 
I mean, it didn't make sense to me, but I mean, it just, you couldn't because it was again, you know, codified into, yeah. They were even like, there was a BYU professor still teaching that like within the last 10 years, I know it was in, it was in the news and he was, um, disciplined, I know, at BYU. And finally, the church did come out and publish an essay on LDS.org that disavowed those terrible racist teachings. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, they disavowed and said, you know, those those early church leaders, it was because they were racist. But for a long time, that had people thought that had the sanction of God. Anyway, that's just another example of how this happens and um, and how it can do just terrible damage Luckily, I just have to say this too. You just implied too that when you heard it, you didn't believe it. And I too, I remember the first time someone said to me like that that African Americans descended from Cain. And I am so grateful. Maybe it's just because I the culture had changed enough by that time. I remember feeling heat just go through my body of like, that is wrong. I that is not right. And I became really angry and I got tears in my eyes. So I am grateful I never internalized it or believed it, but it caused a lot of cognitive dissonance for me because I was like, but wait, a prophet said it. So what's wrong with me that I don't believe it? Anyway, yeah. I guess we could do a whole episode on that. And you could wait. definitely do a whole episode on that. <laughs> and maybe but we I will. think what it really does is hark back to this fact that, you know, something's out there, somebody observes it and not that they're rationalizing, they create this myth. And that's, the perfect way to, to say that. And, you know, and, and really taking it back to the women's, you know, you know, issue that Mila is talking about, you know, and I I think that just is a very parallel example. Yeah. Right. Yes. So yeah. Thank you. Bridging back to Mill. I'll just do two um, brief things that kind of fall under this heading of people seeing what's already existent in society and then creating a, a rule around it. So, Mill, another quote from him is, he says, it is a political law of nature that those who are under any power of ancient origin never begin by complaining of the power itself, but only of its oppressive exercise. So to me, what, uh, sorry to to hammer on the the Mormon comparisons, but uh, to me, this just reminds me of lots of conversations I've had with people who defend patriarchy. And in I feel like in the LDS church, if if I were to point out um, like a husband who's extremely controlling, let's say, with the finances and makes his wife beg for her an allowance and like buys himself fancy cars, but doesn't let her have grocery money. I know that like any person I know, Mormon or not, would say like, no, of course that's not okay." And the term Mormons use is that that's unrighteous dominion. But. And so Mill is saying, like, that's the oppressive exercise of the the dominion. But the thing is that they still, some of these same people who would say, no, of course, a husband isn't allowed to do that. They defend the system wherein girls are discouraged from having a career. They're encouraged to be financially dependent on their husbands. And they're completely dependent upon him for being nice about sharing his money. So that leads to the husband always having the final say about the finances, and he can make the entire family move to a different place if he decides it's best for his career, even if the wife is like bawling and saying this isn't best for me, he can say, sorry, like it's my career. So and and even and if he's nice about it, then it's not technically unrighteous dominion. So what I wanted to the reason that that 
uh, quote jumped out to me of Mill is that he's pointing out is like sometimes a system is unjust and inequitable, even if the person is being nice about it. So people always question things if the people are being monsters, but sometimes there's an unjust system, even if the person is being nice. Okay, so the last point that I wanted to um, bring out from this section is this quote from Mill. He says, I deny that anyone knows or can know the nature of the two sexes as long as they have only been seen in their present relation to one another. So this is Mill just saying, like, we don't really know because like people talk about like the nature of men, the nature of women. And we think of these things as being biological. And maybe they are. Maybe some of them are. But we actually don't know because the restrictions haven't been lifted. um, And and as they do become more and more lifted, we see things that we thought were women's nature, like easily fainting all the time and needing smelling salts. Well, we don't even think of women being that way anymore. And so um, this, this echoes Mary Wollstonecraft who emphasized the concept that if women were perceived as less intelligent, it was because they were deprived of education. If women were perceived as weak or easily fainting, it was because they were deprived of outdoor exercise. Um, (laughs) Right. I mean, and that, that'll, that'll come up again and again in other authors. So um, that wraps up my portion. Francis K, did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, I love about, what you're saying, deprived of outdoor exercise. So I, I really like this next quote he makes about the fitness of women. Quote, women who are in their early, women who in their early years have shared in the healthful physical education and bodily freedom of their brothers and who obtain a sufficiency of pure air and exercise in their life very rarely have any excessive susceptibility of nerves which can disqualify them for active pursuits. Oh, mm. that that speaks so much to my life because with a brother just one year older, I was outside exploring, running around, getting tough, competing, and just building my confidence. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. And if you hadn't been allowed to do that, right? I mean, imagine... <sighs> it may have caused like depression, right? Because you weren't allowed to do the things that you wanted to do. And then right, that- and doing things that I wasn't interested in doing an indoor life that anyways, I, I didn't have parents like that. But it also this one makes me so think of Title Nine, which you're going to get to at a later time. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But with girls in sports, you mean? And yes. Women yeah. in sports. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yep. That's going to come up in a few yeah, episodes. Absolutely. So. Okay, let's shift gears to the next theme, which is This system, which Mill is talking about, can make every single man a tyrant. And because it takes place in the most intimate relationships, women have to appease their oppressors. So there's a long history of women's oppression, and Mill shares a part of that here in this quote. Originally, women were taken by force or regularly sold by their father to the husband. Until a late period in European history, the father had the power to dispose of the daughter in marriage at his own will and pleasure without any regard to hers. Still happens all over the world. (laughs) The church indeed was so far faithful to a better morality as to require a formal yes from the woman at the marriage ceremony. But there was nothing to show that the consent was other than compulsory. And it was practically impossible for the girl to refuse compliance if the father persevered. After marriage, the man had anciently 
but this was anterior to Christianity, the power of life and death over his wife. She could invoke no law against him. He was her sole tribunal and law. For a long time, he could repudiate her, but she had no corresponding power in regard to him, unquote. Wow. Women had to submit to fathers, husbands, and even brothers. This is patriarchy, not just administered on high, but in the household as well. The atrocious inequities of ancient times established systems of beliefs and behaviors that inform our today. Mill's focus spoke to his current era where women could not own property, be considered the guardian of their own children, or let alone divorce. This tyranny, Mill states, was in women's most intimate relationships and making it so very personal. Change has been slow and certainly not everywhere in our world. These gross inequities still exist in many countries. My mother-in-law, who grew up in progressive Sweden, married at an early age to a much older, wealthy husband. She was a bit of a trophy, and he was a bit of an abuser. For more than a decade, she could not get a divorce until the first female attorney in Sweden fought her case. She finally got a divorce when my husband was five years old and then could marry his father. Hey, this was in my lifetime. So then that's when she married Aurel's dad? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I never knew that story. Wow. Yeah. And in Sweden, of all, I would never. Sweden of all places. And um, he would continually pay off the attorneys so that they, she couldn't get the divorce until she found a female attorney who wouldn't take the bribe. Okay, to quote Mill again, quote, the wife is the actual bond servant of her husband. She vows a lifelong obedience to him at the altar and is held to it all through her life by law. So Mill's claim that womanhood was a form of slavery seems unnerving and probably was intended to shock to get readers to take gender inequality more seriously. The use of the idea of bondage or slavery of women is important and will be discussed in this and later episodes. But throughout the book, Mill describes women as existing in a state of bondage to men who act as their masters with so few legal rights that they end up effectively enslaved to their husbands who wield absolute control. This use of these terms, which jolts our our attention, is also where Mill draws on the momentum of the abolitionist movement. So it's important to note the book, The Subjection of Women, was published in 1869, 58 years after slavery was abolished in the British colonies, and four years after it was abolished in the U.S. Wow, just four years after slavery was abolished in our country. That is why the comparison is rather poignant. But here, it's very important to note the flaw in Mill's use of the slavery slavery metaphor as it misunderstands the reality of slavery. The oppression of white women is nowhere near the severity of the oppression of the enslaved Black people, let alone Black women as slaves. Yeah, I agree, Francis Kay. I'm glad glad you brought that out, that it's just people will keep making that comparison. Um, Black thinkers and white thinkers will keep making that comparison over decades. And I think it's fair to compare 
unjust power structures to each other and say, oh, this is what they have in common. This is what they don't. But I'm, I'm really glad that you brought out that reality that the severity is nothing even close, right? A, right. a white woman married in England is not even close to the severity of oppression of, of well, an enslaved well, person. Right? The, right. The lag time from when white women were given the right to, right to vote yes. and black women were given yep. the right to vote. Right. Yep. That's true. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that out. That's great. Back to Mill. I quote, when we put together these three things, first, the natural attraction between opposite sexes. Secondly, the wife's entire dependence on the husband, every privilege or pleasure she has being either his gift or depending entirely on his will. And lastly, that the principal object of human pursuit, consideration, and all objects of social ambition can in general be sought or obtained by her only through him. It would be a miracle if the object of being attractive to men had not become the polar star of feminine education and formation of character. And this great means of influence over the minds of women, having been acquired an instinct of selfishness, made men avail themselves of it to the utmost as a means of holding women in subjection by representing to them meekness, submissiveness, and resignation of all individual will into the hands of a man as an essential part of sexual attractiveness. Oof. Oh my. <laughs> yeah, you hear right? my brain exploding? Totally. Yep. Wow. That is confusing and it feels hard to track. <laughs> That's true. But... <laughs> it is confusing and hard to track. But <sighs> even reading through it like three times, there are so many things that resonate here. Yep. So when I read it for the first time, I had to pause at each one of those aspects mm -hmm. because it has so much current relevance. So for example, when you think of the beauty industry, how we are just sucked into that, how media, how movies and magazines, well, magazines used to be our messenger of how to be beautiful. Um, that's gone by the wayside, but how all of that has shaped our view of the world and ourselves. We need to be younger, skinnier, more beautiful, all to be sexually attracted to the man. Yep. So we all underwrite this story, both men and women. Yep. His comment, the polar star of feminine education and formation of character is the pursuit of attractiveness. Wow. Ugh. Yeah, gross. And we all it we all internalize it. I hate it. I hate Standing at the, I mean, magazines have gone by the wayside for the most part, but just the magazines that are in the grocery checkout aisle, it's just like, I, I want to just like look away and I want to cover my daughter's eyes to be yes. like, don't buy it, don't Stop. buy it. Anyway, yeah, that's a, such a relevant oh. issue still. Well, and then there's the part where Mill says that men hold women in subjection by signifying that sexual attractiveness means being meek and submissive. Yeah. I can't help but connect that to the myriad of studies while I was in education, you know, getting my degree in education, um, you know, understanding why girls' interest in math and sciences takes a deep dive in middle school. Mm -hmm. Well, they've been programmed to think that boys don't like girls who are smart mm -hmm. or smarter than them. Yep. So yep. there's so much to unpack here. We could, you know, like I said, just on that, that quote alone, just... Right do a whole podcast, but go on, Amy, you're, you're next. Okay. I'll take point number four. Um, 
So the next theme that we wanted to talk about is the problem with prescribing gender roles. Um, So Mill begins by referencing the class system that has been in place in Europe. And it was just starting to change at the end of the 19th century. And um, Mill says this, quote, human beings are no longer born to their place in life and chained down by an inexorable bond to the place they are born to, but are free to employ their faculties to achieve the lot which may appear to them more most desirable. Okay, and that's the end of that quote. And so as a society is changing and allowing people to determine their own destiny, rather than being locked into the social class in which they were born, um, which was how it had always been prior to that in Europe under the, you know, serfdom and all of those really stratified, um, really rigid boundaries between the classes. uh, Mill says this, quote, Nobody thinks it necessary to make a law that only a strong armed man shall be a blacksmith. Freedom and competition suffice to make blacksmiths strong-armed men, because the weak-armed can can earn more by engaging in occupations for which they are more fit. End quote. Um, so then he says, after that, he says it's unnecessary to make a rule that certain persons are not fit to do certain things. Quote, even if it be well-grounded in a majority of cases, which it is very likely not to be, there will be a minority of exceptional cases in which it does not hold. And in those, it is both an injustice to the individuals and a detriment to society to place barriers in the way of their using their faculties for their own benefit and for that of others, end quote. Okay, so I love this argument that if someone wants to be a blacksmith, let him try and be a blacksmith. If he's not good at it, then he won't be successful, right? But like, but what if he is? Why would you make a law that says that somebody like, oh, you're kind of scrawny, I'm going to make a law that says scrawny men can't be blacksmiths, right? He might be the the best blacksmith in the world. And conversely, allowing allowing all people to be blacksmiths if they want to doesn't force anybody to be a blacksmith. So that analogy I thought was just really vivid and clear because this argument has been made all throughout history. People, um, when when suffragists were advocating for the right to vote, people would say, oh, you don't want, women don't want the burden of civic engagement. So don't force them to vote. Like that will just stress women out. And so they thought they should make a, a law that women should not be able to vote because some women wouldn't want to, right? Or people saying women don't like to be educated, so don't waste a spot in the university that could have gone to a man. Don't waste that spot on a woman, right? Like, so people right. have made laws that say p- that women, women can't don't, even try, right? right? Women don't want to be pilots or marines right. or engineers. Right. So men make the rules, yeah, and some women support them, that right. women can't be or do those things. Right, exactly. Exactly. I even, and this will maybe resonate with you, Francis K, because I know that you've worked on girls camp, um, church outdoor girls camp every summer. So we have that throughout the Mormon church all over. And I I had an argument with a really dear friend of mine a few years ago about our, um, our like congregations girls camp. And I was arguing that girls should have more opportunities for like what we call high adventure, like the big stuff like rock climbing and longer, harder hikes and like rafting. And I wanted them to be in better locations and just to have the opportunities to do the stuff that the boys their age were literally doing every summer and the girls were not doing. And 
And her reply was, oh, girls don't like to do stuff like that. And I was like, well, so they shouldn't be allowed to because like maybe your daughters don't like to do stuff like that. And so they so no one should have the opportunity to do it. And afterwards, like as I was thinking about it, I wish that what I would have added is that like a lot of 12 year old boys don't want to do those things either. They're super hard. Right. I mean, some of those boys cry and they want to go home and it's hard and their lungs hurt and. But they ha- they are encouraged to do it. And what do you know? They develop the ability to do it. And we have the expectations of them that they can. And so they grow into that expectation and they acquire exactly. self-esteem. To interject, yeah, we had that exact same argument, but we really pressed forward and just said, you know what? It's going to be a hard thing, but these girls can. And when they look back, they'll love it. So we backpacked and hike the second highest peak in Southern California. Oh, awesome. Um, and San Jacinto. And it still stands as one of the best because when you raise the expectation and they can meet it, they, you know, have that satisfaction. But if you didn't open that door, you know, where would they be? Right. Totally. Yeah. I I mean, again, well, just one more example of how Mill makes these arguments. And it is, it, I, I do admit, it is kind of dense language sometimes, but sometimes like these analogies are just really clear and just so relevant. I, again, to the blacksmith, just being like, if somebody wants to try, then let them try. And maybe we should encourage all people to try all different things. I think that's what Mill is saying that you, and to the the overarching point of, of our point number four was don't prescribe gender roles, because it's really limiting what he says. It's limiting to the individual um, who actually does want to try. And it also impoverishes the world by saying, oh, your kind of person isn't allowed to do that kind of thing, because what if they are a genius at it? And then we are all the poorer for them not being able to pursue those um, those endeavors. Exactly. Okay. So that's all I have on point number four. Do you have anything that you wanted to well, add? Yeah. Okay. So uh, the last point is thoughts on marriage, but um, before I start there, I just want to add an interesting side note as it connects to marriage. Um, so when my husband and I had to make decisions about starting a family, Arel occasionally used his background in economics to frame the discussion. Um, he studied and skied with Gary Becker, a Nobel laureate in economics, who was a visiting professor at BYU. And he was the first to apply economic theory to aspects of human behavior, looking at division of labor, specialization, and cost of children, all related to domestic life and and, uh, human behavior. At that point, I was the one with the stable income. I had secured our benefits, and I was the one to guarantee the loan on our new home, our first home. Even though we could almost put our lives on a spreadsheet, there still wouldn't be any way to detangle all the deep roots of our, our socialization and our gender expectations. Mm, it's just amazing. Hmm. But hey, Amy, will you join me in posthumously, posthumously honoring John Stuart Mill with the Nobel Prize in economics for his work totally. on equality? Yes. Yes, I love it. I will. Let's yes. nominate him. Yes. Probably I, the Nobel Peace Prize as well because yes. of, of his work. Okay, so the last point is the um, point number five, where the theme from John Stuart Mill is thoughts on marriage. And this is certainly one of my favorite quotes. And I love ending with this one. Quote, what marriage may be is that best kind of equality 
similarity of powers and capacities with reciprocal superiority in them so that each can enjoy the luxury of looking up to the other and can have alternately the pleasure of leading and of being led in the path of development. I maintain with the profoundest conviction that this and this only is the ideal of marriage and that all opinions, customs, and institutions which favor any other notion of it or turn the concepts and aspirations connected with it to any other direction by whatever pretenses that may be colored are relics of primitive barbarianism. The moral regeneration of mankind will only really commence when the most fundamental of the social relations is placed under the rule of equal justice, and when human beings learn to cultivate their strongest sympathy with an equal in rights and in cultivation. Wow. Wow. That gave me chills to hear you read it out loud. <laughs> yeah. That, that just really stood out to both of us. Right, Amy? Yeah, it really did. It really so did. we talked about it a lot afterwards, mm-hmm. and we think it's important to remember that at the time Mill wrote this in 1892, it was pretty radical to say that women were superior to men in any way, let mm-hmm. alone that men would look up to the woman in any context. And it was absolutely scandalous to think of a man allowing a woman to be his leader. So Mill is saying something really, really progressive here and almost revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, definitely. Um, so as I read it um, this last time when I reread this book for the podcast project, I kept wondering, I, I really stopped at that paragraph and I kept wondering what people in conservative religious communities would think of it. So I sent an email survey um, to a ton of people I know, both men and women, and I asked what they thought of the quote. And I asked questions like, um, do you agree with this quote? Do you believe that men and women both have areas of superiority? What are, what's an example of an instance of men leading women in your personal life or in your church? Um, and what's an example of women leading men in your personal life or in your church life? And the, I, the results of the survey were just really interesting to me. So, Yes, we sat at the beach and talked about this a few weeks ago. Yep. Do you want to share some of those findings? I thought they were just so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had time to like read a bunch of quotes from people kind of mulling over this and wrestling with this. Um, I will just say to summarize that overwhelmingly Mormon men said some version of like, yes, I absolutely agree with this quote. I do not think I'm superior to my wife in any way. Um, She has her realm or her domain that she's in charge of in our marriage. And a lot of men said, oh, my wife is more a leader than I am in many ways. Um, But then you know, two sentences later, they'd say, when I asked the question, like, uh, what's that? How does that play out in your religious life? Then the men would say, but the men preside at church. Or to quote, like, here's a quote from one of my friends. He said, just simply, in our church, the men lead. But he had said that his wife was like his equal and that she was a leader at home. And so they just didn't see any contradiction between the two things. And that is just so familiar, right? Like as a woman, I, again, to, to reference the, the religious and cultural tradition that I grew up in, this is a constant 
topic of conversation between women and between men and women. And honestly, when people say that, when Mormon men are always telling me how men and women are equal, I feel like like there's like a man who's handing out $10 bills and they're like, okay, I'm the one who gets to hand out the money. I get $10, you get $10. I get $10, you get $10. See, it's equal. (laughs) You're like, here, yay, it's equal. And and then I noticed that my $10 is all Monopoly money. <laughs> and so Gosh. I'm like, I show up to barter with it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I brought my $10. It turns out like it doesn't have any value. So right. I actually, there were, I got some surveys back from women too, who said like in the earlier questions when they're like, yes, I agree with this. I agree that we're totally equal and that we have different areas where like I'm better at math and he's better at I don't know, like organization. And we just have our, that the concept of reciprocal superiority. They're like, yep, we're totally equal in my marriage and we're equal at church. But then like, as I asked more probing questions in the, the survey, they were like, oh, wait a second. Like <laughs> this isn't <laughs> adding up. Like, again, like when I go, I guess like that, that example that I used earlier about like, I've just seen this this literal example, and that's why I used it in several different friends' marriages, some of which had, you know, their marriages ended because they were they thought of themselves as equals until uh, you know, a decision of whether to move or like some big financial decision came up or whether there was an impasse and the wife comes to the table like, well, I've got my ten dollars and you've got yours. So we we better figure it out because we're peers, right? And the husband was like, uh, no, like, and, and because he had the financial power and because of the covenants they had made in the temple where it's like men preside over women there, she's like, oh my gosh, are you seriously? And he serious. And he has this Trump card that he can pull. And so <laughs> yeah, that's just con- in constant conversation. No pun right? intended. Ugh. Sorry, yeah, that, that word is ruined now, right? But <laughs> anyway, um, the, I, I guess that's what I wanted to share from my email survey. So, Right. So you told me one thing both the men and women in the surveys mentioned was that their gender-defined roles were just like different, but complementary. Yes, complementary. People kept saying they're yeah, complementary. So different, you know, we have yeah. different roles, but they're the, they're the same. They're, they're complementary. So we looked up complementarianism. It's a long word and found some really interesting stuff. So in many denominations of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, complementarianism is a theological concept, which holds that men and women are equally valuable in personhood and dignity, but that they have different and complementary roles in the home and in the religious community. Those complementary roles, roles are determined by men and exclude women from leadership. Wikipedia describes complementarianism in this way. Complementarians assign primary headship. It's an important word. Mm -hmm. Headship roles to men and support roles to women based on their interpretation of certain biblical passages. One of the precepts of complementarianism is that while women may assist in the decision-making process, the ultimate authority for the decision is the purview of the male in marriage, courtship, and in the polity of churches subscribing to this view. The main contrasting viewpoint to complementarianism is egalitarianism, which maintains that positions of authority 
and responsibility in marriage and religion should be equally available to females as well as males. So given that definition, what Mill is advocating for is egalitarianism. He is explicitly rejecting the notion of automatic male headship. He says that sometimes the male will be the head and sometimes the female will be the head and that those areas are determined by each partner's strengths and talents and interests, not automatically determined by gender. And I have to say, looking at complementarianism and egalitarianism side by side, I just don't see how people can say that complementarianism is equitable. I think if one person is a leader and the other person is a follower, and the leader determines the rules of engagement to keep saying, we're equal, or the system is equitable, is disingenuous. This right there reminds me of the Jim Crow laws. The separate but equal, that certainly, and as we look back on our history, was not equal. It was separate, but it was not equal. And I think this complementarianism just really harks to that same idea. What do you think, Amy? Yeah. Uh, so I, I took a civil rights, uh, a class on the civil rights movement last year. And um, one of the conversations we had is we, our whole class was debating whether there could be, you know, if the system could be equitable or if it was a, a worthy goal to try to make the system equitable. And and in the end, we all just kind of agreed. We're like, wait a second. No, the, the whole foundation of this conversation is corrupt at its foundation because it's a group of white people making the rules and the laws for a group of non-white people. And that at its core is not democratic. It's not just. And so the only way to determine what is equitable is would be for a group of all people what equally represented in a room saying, here's what feels right to me. Here's, here's what feels fair to me, right? You can't have one group of people making the rules for another. No matter how hard they try to make it fair, it's just not ever going to be fair. And also, it's just not the right way to start, right? I just really believe in democracy. And so that's why the, you know, the, the, segre- well, the segregation laws were just wrong on every level because it was one group of people that was in power making the rules for everybody else. And so, again, we're making this comparison between um, oppressive race systems and, and oppressive gender systems. But um, yeah. But that, I think it's I right on. Yeah, that's, that's what complementarianism kind of suggests it, it, to me. Exactly. That they're, oh, we're both equal, they say out of one side of their mouth. And then with the other side, they're like, oh, but by the way, we're in charge. That's not yeah. equality. You can't call it equality. It's not. You right. can say the word. And, and we're going to tell you what your role is. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, well, the next thing that I, that both of us, we were talking about it before and we're like, oh, yeah, there's the proclamation on the family, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that, Francis K. But yeah, no, it, it's what's bothered me for a while that in the LDS faith, that the proclamation of the family uh, is exactly what we're talking about here, mm-hmm. identifying roles that are said to complement each other. The male role is to preside, provide, and protect. The female role is to nurture children. So, what it, essentially is it? Men rule, women serve. I don't find that a compliment. Do you? No, no. And they, again, they can say in one part, they can say, oh, men and women will work as equal partners. And that's great. But I mean, 
I'm sure you know about this too, about the way that the proclamation to the world. So it's this 1995 document where the prophet of the church and the 12 apostles and well, the prophet and his um, counselors and the 12 apostles came out with this big proclamation on the family. And it was read in the, the general women's meeting. And um, I'm sure you know this Francis K, but Chaco Okazaki, who was in the, um, the presidency of the women's organization at the time, she later talked about it. And she said, she said, actually, yeah, that, that, family proclamation, they didn't even tell us they were writing it. It was President Hinckley at the time, who was just a dear, wonderful man. They're good, good men, in my view, but they they had all gotten together. It was supposed to be about the family. They did not invite any women. They wrote it. They determined the terms of engagement for men and women. They defined what equality means. And then they wrote in there that men preside over their families. They could have written that men and women preside over their children, but nope, they wrote men preside over their families. Anyway, he goes to Chaiko Okazaki and said, isn't this a wonderful proclamation that we've written? And she said, why didn't you include us to be a part of the the writing of this document? And she said, the quote was, she said, I think sometimes they just forget that we're there. And so, I mean, you see this document and right at the bottom of it, there's the signatures of 15 men. And it's right. So again, there we have that's complementarianism, right? Where you say the word equality and you say, oh, your role is this. My role is this. But we're the ones who define. We're the ones who write it. We're the ones who deliver it and disseminate it. And we're going to hand it to you and have you read it at your meeting. So I don't know. For me, that has always been frustrating and it took me like decades to figure out why I was so uncomfortable with that document Mm -hmm. and really try to make it make sense. And I felt so uncomfortable. And it was not until this reading of John Stuart Mill. And then when you and I find like we researched complementarianism kind of as a result of this email survey that I did. And I'm like, Oh, it has a name. Like (laughs) that ideology has a name and I don't agree with it. I am an egalitarian. I am not, I'm not a complementarian anyway. Well, it's, it's a very, very big word in the evangelical community. And that's where I was first introduced with my girlfriend who's doing a, you know, a documentary on baptizing feminism and exactly that kind of shift away from complementarianism. But it's, it's the biblical justification, which you can't undermine. And you've just there, it's just, that's the hardest part is that they can use the Bible as their argument. And, and, um, so it's, so how do you argue with that? Yeah. It's hard to argue with. Totally. I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. I'm really glad you brought that up, Francis K. This is not just a problem within our faith tradition. It's not at all. And like you said at the beginning, when you define complementarianism, you find it in all of the, the major world religions, you know, they, they have this version of it and it's, it's rooted in, in the sacred text. So it's super hard. I would yeah. say in a nutshell, you know what I'm usually at the end of the episode, we take turns saying what our takeaway is. That's going to be mine. I'm just going to end with that. Like I am so grateful to have frameworks and that's what Mill provided for me on lots of different topics. Like, oh my gosh, 
this thing that I'm sensing, it actually has a name and here's the way it works. And so it just really helps me to understand the issues better. So Francis K, what was like a nugget of wisdom or a takeaway that you gained from this book? Well, okay. So that for sure, I just have to say amen and just echo, you know, what you're saying about giving some framework and some really concrete argument to things that I've always been thinking about, but how he puts it, even in his Victorian language, just actually made so much sense to me. But I think the part that really, really struck me is how his ideas were radical for his time and to assert that equal rights for women and and, and all the issues of gender roles, the things that he was really trying to unpack there. And all of those things, 150 plus years ago, we are dealing with today. Now, things equal pay, domestic violence, sex trafficking, political representation. These can all be tied back to many of Mill's arguments. This book was just so rich. There were Mm -hmm. parts we couldn't get to, like how men hold women in subjection by establishing that sexual attractiveness means being meek and submissive. We only touched on that a little bit. Or the discussion of... the empty nest syndrome. And this is me right now. The difficulty when your life's work, your children are moving on, and then you become void of worth and purpose. He talks about that. Mill's insights and clarity on the issues of equality and the ideals of liberty for men and women are so relevant and timely. I'm just so, so happy to have been a part of this podcast and I'm totally excited for the next ex- installment to undisclose cover, discover, and discard. I mean, break down patriarchy. (laughs) Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is, it's just been a joy to talk about these issues with you. And we've been batting our ideas back and forth with email and talking on the phone. And it just, I have been so enriched by diving in. This is not, I, I I have to, I don't want to discourage any readers, uh, or listeners from reading this book because it's so valuable. It's not the easiest book to read though. I mean, it, right. it is, he's a philosopher and the, the language, it does take some thoughtful reading, but it's not terribly long and it's super valuable. But anyway, this is all to say, thank you for doing this dive with me, Francis K. I learned oh, so much from you. So great for me, really. That's great. Well, I'm honored. Thanks again. I am honored too. For our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we'll be temporarily pressing pause on the 19th century and adding an insert that's out of order chronologically. You might remember that several weeks ago in our discussion of the Virgin Mary and early Christian history, I talked about how we couldn't know what Mary, the mother of God, actually thought or said or did. Um, because there is no book of Mary. Her words are all inventions of male writers after the fact. Well, after I released that episode, I heard back from several listeners who said, okay, maybe there's not a book of Mary, but what about the gospel of Mary Magdalene? So I was actually surprised with myself that I overlooked that book because I read the Gospel of Mary Magdalene for a class on the Sacred Feminine in grad school a couple of years ago. So I was actually surprised that I forgot about it and left it off our reading list. So afterwards, I wondered if I should go back and create an addendum to that episode on the Virgin Mary, but I wasn't really sure how to go to go about it, and I didn't want to break the chronological flow, but it just kept coming back to my mind. 
And so long story short, I got in touch with one of my academic and spiritual heroes, Dr. Kayleen Asbo, who is an expert on the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And she got back to me and said she would do an episode. She was excited to be my reading partner. And so I am absolutely thrilled to invite you to join us for this special insert next week, um, which is on the topic that dovetails with our discussion of the Virgin Mary and the female saints and the early Christian church. So for a bit of background about this text Um, The Gospel of Mary Magdalene was a text that was written on papyrus at the same time as the books that the the books of the New Testament were written in the early centuries after Christ. Um, It was written in an ancient Egyptian language called Coptic, and it includes conversations between the apostles and Mary Magdalene herself. Uh, Dr. Asbo recommends the translation by Jean-Yves Leloup. So that's the one we'll be using, and you can buy it or you can listen to it on Audible. His translation is also available on Audible. Um, or if you want, you can find other translations of it online for free. If you look at sites like the Gnostic Society Library, that's Gnostic, like G-N-O-S-T-I-C, the Gnostic Society Library, or MaryMagdala.com. The text is not very long. It's just a few pages. So give it a quick read or listen, and then join us for a discussion of this lost and rediscovered ancient text with the incredible Dr. Kayleen Asbo, The Gospel of Mary Magdalene, next week on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.